Let's pretend that this isn't advice. And I'm Erin, and I'm not giving you advice. It's it's not advice. I can't help myself <laughs> give advice. I don't mean to. I don't want to. I want you to be able to live your life, but I know how to do it. I'm a huge know-it-all, and this is where I practice not giving advice to people. Except I totally give advice to them. I'm a lawyer turned professional certified coach, and I just happen to give the best advice. But this is a podcast, not a coaching session, so I obviously don't do that here, except I do. This is not advice with Erin Conlon, your know-it-all lawyer coach friend. This is not advice. On today's episode of This Is Not Advice, I have author and life coach Karen Freeland. Karen came to me by way of two people in my life who, I don't know, it's just a wild coincidence. They're not related to each other. And uh, I just feel like Karen was a gift from the universe um, and a piece of the puzzle for me, reminding me to stay connected to my body. And I think that in this conversation, it was a huge reminder that we are humans having a human experience in a human body. And that's the thread of the, of the episode. Um, what is it like to be a human and be in our bodies? Karen wrote a book called uh, The Ins and Outs of My Vagina, a Penetrating Memoir. And we talk about that. We talk about so many other things. And I really think that you will get a, a lot out of listening to this conversation. Um, yeah, have a great day. Reach out to either one of us if there's something that resonates for you. Uh, and take excellent care of this vessel. Hi, Karen. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh my God, thanks for coming on this show. I am really excited to have you. And one of the things that I think is really fun is that you and I have two very separate, totally random connections that have, I, I feel like we were destined to meet. Yes. The universe was putting us together in some way. So uh, first of all, why don't you just tell the audience who you are? Yeah, sure. So hey, everybody, I'm Karen Freeland. I am a uh, self-proclaimed recovered corporate workaholic who uh, decided to become an author and a life coach. And so now I get to uh, help women every day transform their lives and just live my best life and share my my vagina stories. <laughs> <laughs> right. You have a book. What's your book called? It's, yeah, it's called The Ins and Outs of My Vagina, a Penetrating Memoir. I love the play. I love I love the word play of that. <laughs> Thank you. Because not everyone does, you know, especially a lot of the ad platforms. Um, they're not loving on uh, the ins and outs of my <laughs> vagina, but that's okay because, you know, I love a good challenge. So it's not a problem. Yeah. Well, so the two connections that we have are, we have a, a colleague. You mm -hmm. did the podcast of my my colleague, Jason Frizzell. Yes. Um, he, did, he has a podcast called Talking to Cool People. So you, you're automatically cool. He labeled you as cool. Thank you. But the other one that is so wild and out of the blue and the one that we actually connected through is my former neighbor. 
who and now I'm in South Carolina. So for I didn't mention that, but I'm in Greenville, South Carolina. So pretty far away from Chicago. Yeah, she joined the Junior League, which I just need to own my bias. Mm-hmm. For me, the Junior League is like crustless cucumber sandwiches and very prim <laughs> ladies with corsets and dresses that like A-line dresses and definitely lunch meetings where you get day drunk. Yeah, none. I'm actually none of those, um, but <laughs> I know what you mean. And I had a bit of a bias myself too, and I wasn't really sure if I was going to fit in. And I have to say, I'm so glad I checked it out because it's been a really rewarding experience. Well, what is it? Like, what if I'm wrong about the Because yeah. ju- my vision of the Junior League is very clearly from like the early 1960s. <laughs> Right. And it might have been accurate then. I don't know, but because I've only been in for about a year, but the Junior League of South Carolina, and it may also be chapter dependent, um, is a women's service organization. So we're really, our main charter is to give back to the community. So we have a thrift shop uh, called the Nearly New Shop where you can come and donate clothes and, uh, you know, anything, books, books, couches, like whatever. And we sell it back to the community at a really low rate. So it's all based off of donations. So we don't really have a lot of overhead. And then the profits that we make, we can give back to the community in the forms of like whatever, food drives, or um, we just did an event called Empowered Women of Greenville, where we're actually giving education, how to manage your finances, how to get ahead in your career. I did a session on how to use LinkedIn. So that's you know one of the things we do. And then we have some other service uh, community partners where we're helping with stopping, you know, human trafficking and helping with socioeconomic development. So, um, you know, I'm still learning myself because it's only been a year. Don't get me wrong. We do love a good night social, uh, you know, at the (laughs) the country club. So I won't lie, but you really have, I think this area has gotten so much more diverse in the last, you know, five, 10 years. Greenville's Uh really exploded that I think just by that very nature, it's really evolving and it's um, just becoming a group where you can meet so many really fascinating women. Well, Greenville's like a super hot real estate market too, right? Yeah. A wild, I, I didn't even know Greenville existed basically until Lindsay and her husband moved down there. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know either. We literally sort of just like picked it off of a map when we knew we wanted to move from New Jersey. We were thinking originally Columbia or Charleston. Or maybe Charlotte. But everyone, every time I said Columbia, they were like, no, you need to check out Greenville. You need to check out Greenville. And I was like, okay, like I'll check it out. And the houses were amazing. Like the market was just right because we kind of got in before it really, really popped. Mm-hmm. Um, and the city is so green. Like they have a whole park that like basically walks right by the falls, right through the downtown. And I just felt like this is a big enough city for me to thrive and have things to do and be a great place to raise kids. But it's not like a New York City where it's just like overwhelmingly big and you get lost in a sea of people and it's hard to make fit into the community. At least that was my personal experience from living. Yeah. Well, how long have you been in Greenville? So a year, uh, well, a year and one month. So April 1st was a year. 
Oh, so you joined the junior league, like basically as soon as you moved there. Pretty much. Yep. My realtor told me about it because I was like, how can I meet people and also like get the word out on my business? Because I work from home and it's super lonely. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love hanging out with my dog and like, you know, just being able to be in control of my own time. But there is that aspect of working in an office um, that you don't get that human interaction every day. So it's not like I was going to be able to meet people from right. an office. So I'm like, how do I get to meet people? And I don't know about you, but I think making friends as adults is so hard. And especially as women, I don't know. Like for me, that's just how I feel a lot of times. It's really hard to make like actual connections with people. Honestly, I think that, well, so we're both coaches and we both have clients, but I honestly believe that one of the biggest gaps for my clients is this friendship gap Mm -hmm. because so many of my clients are high performing, high achieving women who often have families, the kids, you know, whether they're young or in their tween to teenage, they've spent so much time taking care of these kids that they don't have time for themselves or their husbands or friendships or whatever. And then they're like, the friendships that they do have are usually situationally based. So mm-hmm. they're moms from school or, um, I don't know, soccer practice moms or whatever. Yeah. And then it's how our neighbors, neighbors are another way to make friends. Lindsay was my friend because she's my neighbor and I'm a huge introvert. I don't go to places that much, but like, that's how I make friends and I make yep. friends by activities by like going to do things. I make friends at the dog park or I make friends. Mm-hmm. I used to do stand up comedy. I have a bunch of comedy friends, but I do think it's really, how do you make friends as a, as an adult is one of those things where it's like, you have to be conscientious of it, especially if you're a woman. Yeah. Yeah. And, and take the time to reach out to people. So that's been one of the things it's like, well, I I'll sit around and be like, well, no one's invited me to anything. And I'm like, yeah, Karen, when is the last time you picked up the phone and you invited someone over for a glass of wine or to go to brunch with you or whatever. It's like, right. Like stop sitting around and waiting for other people to make the first move. Like you can be that person. You can actually create your (laughs) destiny. What do you know? (laughs) So in an average week, how many friendship dates do you set up? Um, I would say at least one. So on a good week, I might have two, maybe even three. But I've really made an effort to have at least one a week, schedule permitting. Like, I really, like, try to block it out. And usually it's on a Friday because I don't work Fridays. Nice. Um, yes, I know. That was one of the things that um, one of my coaches asked me, like, right from the get-go, was like, how do you want to build your life? How do you want to build your business? And I was like, I, what do you mean? I don't understand. She's like, well, how many days a week do you want to work? What do you want this to look like? And I was like, oh, I get to choose that? <laughs> oh, oh, that sounds great. I'm like, I don't want to work Fridays. And so I really have created this space that gets to be for me. So mm-hmm. Fridays are my day and I can go volunteer. Um, I can go to lunch with friends. I can go get a laser wax, you know, removal appointment if I want. Like whatever. It's it's my day to spend how I choose. Um, and I, I love that. So that's usually my friend date. Oh, that's fun. Well, let's back up. So you wrote this yeah. book called The Ins and Outs of Your Vagina, A Penetrating (laughs) Memoir. And just let's talk about your book a little bit. Okay. What caused this book to be birthed? 
Yeah, that's usually the first question. <laughs> like, where did you come up with the idea to write a book about your vagina? And I say the book is about my vagina, but it's obviously about so much more, right? It's about the taboo, the stigma, um, feeling embarrassed about your body, not speaking up when you really should speak up. So there are much bigger themes, but I like to say it's about my vagina for the shock factor. So I talk Mm -hmm. about it in chapter 30, all lubed up with nowhere to go. (laughs) But um, the cliff notes is that I was pregnant with my first son and I went to the OB for like my seven month checkup and she was like, okay, you need to prepare your body for birth. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm taking a Lamaze class. I'm good. She's like, no, you need to do this thing called a perineal massage. And you put olive oil on your fingers and then you massage the vulva open and stretch out the skin. So apparently when you have a baby, you won't tear. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm, okay, lady. Thanks for that advice. I'm never doing this. Like, this sounds crazy. I'm not putting olive oil on my vagina. Like, goodbye. So I go home and my vagina, who's a character in the book named V, got bored one Friday night while my husband was at work and was like, hey, let's do this thing. She's like, I don't want to tear. And I'm like, all right, fine. And it was like a shit show. You know what I mean? Like olive oil was flying everywhere. I fell off the bathtub on my knees. Like, I mean, it was just like nothing was working. I couldn't get my hands, my fingers in the right position. It just was a debacle. So I gave up and my husband comes home and he's just looking at me crazy. Like, why is there olive oil in the bathroom? Like, what (laughs) the hell were you doing? And I tried to explain it. And he just looked at me dead in the eye and was like, you know what you should do? You should write a book and call it, I don't know my vagina because it's clear you don't know how this thing works. And, you know, he had dealt with me for years of like not knowing when my period was coming, not knowing if I was late or not, not knowing if I was pregnant or not. Like, he's just like, I don't get it. You consistently just don't know how your body works. And so um, that was it. That was that seed that got planted. And at first I really didn't think too much of it. Like mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not a writer. I'm in corporate. What you're crazy. But I started brainstorming all the time. Like when I'd be in the shower or blow drying my hair or just whenever. And I'd be like, Oh, that time I lost my virginity and totally screwed it up. Oh, that time I lost that tampon in the toilet and couldn't figure out where it went. Like there were like so many little stories that kept popping up. And I was like, I think we're on to something. So that was it. I just started writing. And then, you know, it took a little backseat for a while while I did the corporate thing. But then 10 years later, I dusted it off and said, no, it now is the time. Now is the right time. I need to write this and follow this dream for once. I'm so glad that you did. Thank what, you. Um, in creating this book, mm-hmm. what are you most proud of? Uh, what am I most proud of? I mean, A, that I did it because Mm -hmm. I just think there were a lot of moments where I tried to talk myself out of it, um, where I self-sabotaged or thought, oh, no one wants to read this. Um, you know, no one's going to care what I have to say. You know, there were, oh, I don't have the money to do this. I mean, you name it, just every, the litany of things that we go through in our head when we have a dream. Um, But B, I think 
that I also just had the confidence to own it and create a really, really, really good story. I mean, mm-hmm. I I read the book and was like, after I was done editing and it was like finally all one big draft and I read the whole thing through in like two days. And I just remember going, I have to publish. This is actually a damn good book. Like, this is really funny. Women yeah. are going to find this so funny. I have to do it. So what, have you gotten like lots of feedback from people, what has the feedback been like for you? It's been amazing. I mean, nothing makes me happier than when I get, you know, a DM or a, a text or whatever from somebody who's read the book and they're like, oh my gosh, I couldn't stop laughing. Or, you know, you took me right back to getting my period on the playground in, you know, fourth grade or whatever. And just all these stories um, that I hear from people is so overwhelmingly encouraging. You know, it's just this amazing validation. So on according to the reviews on Amazon, um, I have about 63 of them at this point and all but three are five stars. And then there's like a couple of four stars, but even a four star review is pretty darn good. So that's amazing. Yeah. Especially when it comes from somebody you don't know. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love when my friends and family are actually like, oh, wow, you actually wrote a really good book. Like, <laughs> you know, they're like, Surprise. oh, we didn't know what to expect, but okay. Um, but when it's a complete stranger who has no idea who I am, what I'm about, and they read it and go like, wow, this was a really good book, that uh, blows me away. Um, I The same thing happened with me when people started listening to my podcast and they were like, Aaron, this is actually really good. You're a really good interviewer. You have a nice voice. I'm like, you've known me for 20 years, man. (laughs) Do you think I would put out something mediocre? And like, right. Anyway, what I love about the premise of your book, and I am going to own that I haven't read it fully, but um, because, you know, I'm a I'm the worst. I used to read so much and now I've gotten really lazy about reading. (laughs) But what I love about it, it's kind of like reinventing your relationship with your body. 100%. Tell me about that. What was it like to get to know your body again through like stories? Yeah. uh, There were a lot of emotions. There were. Yeah, of course. Because, um, You know, the vagina is a source of so many different experiences, some very positive, some very sexual and, you know, sensual in nature, and some really devastating, Um, you know, talking about ectopic pregnancy and miscarriage for the first time was incredibly challenging because I'd never told anyone. Mm. The only people that knew were my parents and my husband's parents. I'm not, I honest to God, can't remember if I even told my sister. Like I didn't tell anyone because I didn't know what to say and I didn't want sympathy or pity, I guess. So uh, as I was like writing the book, I was like, I have to include this though because it is such a pivotal moment for a woman or anyone who's birthing children that has a vagina. Um, when you lose a baby, there's just no words for it. And so going back through that was, I don't want to say traumatic, but it just brought back a lot of emotions. 
And then there were other times where I'd be writing a chapter about, you know, me and my husband the first time we had sex and it was like really hot. And like, you know, he had rose petals on the bed and I was like, your husband brought rose petals the first time you had sex. Not even kidding. We were dating. We were in college. Mm hmm. (gasps) Yeah. What a nerd. Yes. And if you knew him, like you would be like, what? He must have read it in Maxim or something and was like, oh, this sounds like a good idea because he would never do something like that now. But yeah, he knew what he was doing. Do you do you wish he would do something like that now? Of course. You should tell him. Yeah. Sometimes I do. And then he looks at me and he's like, I work and I do this and I do that. And I'm like, ah, but I keep trying. I keep trying, I keep pushing, I keep nudging him. (laughs) I mean, God bless 20-year-old men for their desire to make women happy. I wish middle-aged men brought that kind of energy. Oh, amen. He used to leave flowers on my car outside of the tanning booth. (laughs) The tanning booth. Who goes, don't go tanning, it's bad for your skin. But I used to do it all the time. And so I would come out and there'd be like a note and some flowers. And I was like who is this guy? Like, this is great. And now it's like, I'm like, can you please wear deodorant today and maybe put some cologne on? I don't know. It doesn't seem like a lot to ask. We're going on a date. (laughs) Yeah. Well, back to the, back to the memoir and the book. Um, What did you rediscover about yourself? How little I still know about my vagina at this mm-hmm. day and time. Really? Um, it was really funny because I had to get endorsements for the book. You know, you don't have to, but it's a good thing to do. Yeah. And so Dr. Lori Mintz, who is a sex therapist, she teaches, I think it's the University of Florida. Um, she has a PhD. I mean, she's r- written several books herself. And I reached out to her and said, you know, would you read my book and give me an endorsement? And so she's like, I would be honored. So I send her the book. She reads it. She comes back. She's like, um, I really love your book. And she wrote a great endorsement. She's like, but one thing that doesn't sit right with me is that you use the word vagina in a lot of places where you actually mean vulva. She's like, so can we just put a little disclaimer in the front of your book? And I was like, Yup, we sure can. We probably should do that. (laughs) But I was like, damn, like here I am again, like just learning that vagina and vulva are actually two different pieces. And it's like something that I think I knew, but I just didn't ever, I'm never talking to somebody and I'm like, wow, my vulva is so itchy. Like, Like you just don't say those words. Right. So I was like, wow, okay. Still learning. Well, and, you know, I think as, like, uterus-carrying, vagina-having human beings, a lot of times we just hold the anatomy as the one thing Mm. rather Mm -hmm. than the entire anatomical system. Sure. You know, because it's not just, like, an ectopic pregnancy isn't actually in your uterus. It's in your fallopian tubes. And that is not actually anywhere near your vagina. (laughs) (laughs) So true. And yet it's a, it's a story that is related to your reproductive system. It's a story that, you know, is related to you and how you relate to being a, a woman. 
Mm-hmm. And that's probably like the bigger overarching theme for you. How yeah. do you relate to yourself as a, I don't know, a human being with <laughs> female genitals? Yeah. And I think the other thing that I sort of rediscovered about myself, um, and I don't, and I hate to use this word, but just like how normal I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean that in the best sense of like, we're all normal, you know, like I don't, I don't like to use the word normal because it makes other people feel like they're not normal, but you know, the things I talk about, um, bodily discharge, urinary tract infections, just like all these things that for years made me feel ashamed of my body, made me feel disgusting, made me feel broken, you know, not being able to orgasm every time just from penetration alone, right? Like all these taboo topics that no one talks about. I then suffered in silence feeling like, well, I'm the weird one. And after I got done writing the book and I've had so many people come back and be like, oh my gosh, I had discharge or I thought that I was the only one or, oh my gosh, I had a urinary tract infection and I thought it was a yeast infection and I put yogurt in my vagina. Like, oh my God, (laughs) these like amazing stories. And I'm like, okay, but if we start talking about this stuff, instead of hiding and Googling alone by ourselves at 2 a.m. and coming up with ideas about how to treat our bodies, then if I can just break the stigma you know, like we are normal. This is normal. This is a normal bodily experience and there's nothing to be ashamed of. And that for me was so um, empowering because mm-hmm. I just didn't have to hide behind any of that anymore. And I can like say, I mean, I never thought I ever would be on a podcast talking about vaginal discharge. Like that to me, like those two words would have made me cringe and just like pretend like it didn't happen to me because I didn't want anyone to know that that was something because I thought it was so disgusting. Well, it's not disgusting. It's totally normal. It's like a cleaning function. You need that. Okay. End of story. (laughs) Well, and I think the other thing is, you know, it depends on how you were, how you were brought up or like what you learned or what you rejected by what you learned or what you were willing to go learn by yourself or what your friends taught you or, you know, like I had a lot of punk rock friends, thank God. And so when I grew up, there was a lot of like questioning of what people told me. Mm-hmm. And I think as a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old and a 22-year-old, just having that skill helped me a little bit in some of these like shame-based things. And yet I was raised Catholic. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean I am immune to some of these sex-based shame spirals that come about. Sure. Yeah. What do you think shaped your, like, what's the, what are the foundations for what shaped your relationship with your body before this book? Oh, well, certainly religion. I mean, absolutely. We grew up in a a Christian household. um, And so a lot of the teachings for me were just don't have sex until you're married. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I'll be totally honest. I'm not necessarily opposed to that. And uh, that's pretty much the message I'm giving my children. Mm-hmm. But I know that they are going to make their own way just like I did. The mm-hmm. difference, the way that I'm trying to approach it, though, is to still educate them. So this is what happens when you have sex. This is what it feels like. This is what it could look like. This is how you could do it. Like, um, this is why you need to make sure she comes first. I mean, my kids are 10 and 12. We're not there yet. You know, I'm right. taking this in like age appropriate steps, but 
that's going to be a conversation that I absolutely 100% sit down and have with my boys. Like you have got to make sure you are pleasing her. This isn't all about you. Um, but so I think that has obviously shaped how I saw myself as a woman. Um, and, you know, sometimes feeling like, oh, you got to take one for the team, right? So I, I talk about um, a time when I was having sex in in my teens with my boyfriend, um, who I was very much in love with. Mm-hmm. And he was, uh, he, I guess I had a, an ovarian cyst pop. And it, yeah, in the middle of it. And it was hurting so bad. And I oh, like no. didn't want to say anything um, because, you know, A, I didn't want to hurt his feelings. Meanwhile, I'm writhing in pain. Like, oh my gosh, every thrust is like, feels like my insides are crumbling. But also I think there were probably just views either maybe from the rap music I was listening to or whatever, where like, you know, you just kind of like make sure he's pleased, make sure he gets what he needs. Um, So certainly I think a lot of that probably shaped um, my views. Uh, Yeah, I think that that is the that's the socialization that has been very hard to shake is mm -hmm. like the pleasing other people. Insects. Mm-hmm. Um, and the what I've noticed about our generation, because I think we're around the same age, is that that's how we were socialized mm-hmm. as women is to make sure other people are happy. Yeah. And so it I think it gets even more accentuated in sex because it's behind closed doors. <laughs> I don't know. There's something about relationships in there and us meeting our own needs and all of that stuff. And now with the conversation in the world changing, I think with me too, I think with all of the way that the world has shifted, how I've changed, Mm -hmm. it's a little like, oh, what do I want out of this experience too? Yeah. What makes a good relationship for me? What makes a good experience of sex for me? Because it's definitely not just making you happy. Right. Yeah. And learning to speak up. And I think that that was, um, you know, I'm, I'm really good at speaking up in certain areas of my life. Uh, at work, I never really had a problem speaking up. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I was an actress before I got into corporate. So I'm very accustomed to going after my dreams. Um But there was something in me that I didn't always speak up in the bedroom. And so I talk about that. I talk about going and getting a vibrator and I share the first time that I use it and what that was like and having this moment where you're like, whoa, I'm not broken. I need to start speaking up in the bedroom and being like, hey, we got to try this or we got to bring my friend to the party because this is what I need for me to feel fulfilled and satisfied in the bedroom. Mm -hmm. And that's hard. It's hard to speak up because you it don't want to hurt someone's feelings, especially when you're in a committed relationship like that. Well, and I remember what my somebody that I dated in my 20s bought me my first vibrator and I, it was like Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome though. You got it as a gift? I Dang. did. He, he was a very good man. He still is a very good man. And I feel like that's the kind of relationship that, you know, was probably why I'm still single, but that's what the kind of relationship that I have been looking for is the, that contribution to my life, 
not necessarily where you have to be the one to make me happy, but where you add something to it. And yeah. um, it doesn't mean that I don't know, but like bring something to the table. And I think that that's part of the exploration of sex is like, hey, what do you know that I don't know? Mm-hmm. What do I know that you don't know? How is the fun little chemistry that what's the science experiment of today and us together? Yeah. Oh, I think that's beautiful. I think more people should do that. So for anyone out there that has a partner, your homework tonight, (laughs) go home and bring something to the table because um, we're craving it, you know? And I think a lot of people think, well, women don't have good sex drives. You know, women just don't want it all the time. Every single woman that is over the age of 35 that I know is in this like weird hormone surge and is like... Yeah. Like I need to have sex right now. Every day. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Like if I go more than two days, I'm like full on bitch mode raging. And then he'll be like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, really? What is wrong with me? When's the last time we had sex? (laughs) 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 That's what's wrong with me. And if you even have to ask me that, you're not paying enough attention. But yeah, I mean, my sex drive is like uber high. And his was like, eh, you know? So- Mm -hmm. That like if your woman you think has a low sex drive, chances are she doesn't. Chances are you're just like there's something in the bedroom that is awry or amiss or something that is preventing you from even getting to the bedroom. Like, you know, a lot of times they just kind of want to like swoop in and just get stick it right in. And it's like, hey there, buddy, I need a little time to warm up. Like make me anticipate it. Like that, that's what's so fun about dating is like, ah, you're just like anticipating the moment you're making out for a while. And then you like finally go in for the kill and it's like, you're so ready for it by then. And now we're all just like, oh man, the kids are uh, at their friend's house. We got like 20 minutes before they get home. Like let's, and you're okay. Now it's a chore. You know, I'm not saying quickies aren't fun. They can be, but you know, it just, we lose a lot of that magic. Well, it's the relational, like it's that relational chemistry rather than the expectations. Mm -hmm. It's like, um, what is the, it's what's the fun in it rather than what am I performing? And the latter, like kids are gone, we've got 20 minutes. It kind of creates this performance Mm -hmm. expectation, performance for you, performance for them. And it's, I don't want to speak for, like all people, but that for me can take a lot of the joy out of it. Yes. It's not that I need 20 minutes all the time, but I do need the joy to be there. Yes. Oh, I like how you said that. Um, what is it that like for you, cause I know you don't focus only on sex with your clients. Oh, definitely not. Yeah. How does this book translate to everyone's lives? Yeah. It's very much the exemplification of me going for my dreams, not settling for status quo. Mm -hmm. And that is my biggest message to anyone out there is you can have an okay life. You can have a fine life or you can have a great life. You can have an amazing life. Fine is a four letter word. (laughs) Right. Why settle? Why settle for just okay, just fine, tolerable, you know? And and for so many years, that's what I was doing in corporate. You know, I had the six-figure salary. 
I had the bends in the driveway. I had the healthy kids. You know, I had a great marriage. I mean, I had a nice house, decent house. I mean, let's not get crazy, but it was all fine. But it was like, okay, I'm, I'm not fulfilled though. Something was missing. There was a bigger calling or a bigger purpose for me. And I suppressed it. You know, every time that little bubble would pop up, I'm stop it. You're, what do you have to complain about? You have a great life. Settle down, you know? Um, how are you going to pay all your bills if you go off on a whim and decide you want to write a book, for example, whatever? You're crazy. Just, you made your bed, now lay in it. Just keep doing the right thing. Be an adult. It's like, what? what are these messages I was giving myself? And so finally, you know, I was like, I'd had enough. You get the breaking point. Yeah. Just can't take it anymore. What did I know what not having fulfillment feels like? Mm. But what did not being fulfilled feel like in your body? Mm. Hopelessness, complete and utter hopelessness, um, feeling overwhelmed, exhausted stressed out, angry, so toxic, so much. I used to say like, I'm spitting venom today. And it was literally like, this is venom coursing through my veins. And I was so unhappy with my situation that I just let it come out of me at anyone and everyone. Um, that could have been, you know, during my morning commute. <laughs> that could have been mm-hmm. in the office in a meeting when someone criticized my work. Um, you know, it could have been at the kids because I've asked them six times to get ready for bed. And I'm just thinking about the mountain of work I have to do tonight. It could be at my husband because he didn't do the dishes. Um, you know, whatever. It was just any little thing would set me off. And the reason I said hopelessness at the beginning was because I didn't know what would I do if I'm not doing this? What, mm. you know, the book wasn't even a reality yet at this moment. Um, and we had a couple of deaths in the family. And so I was grieving those pretty hard. They were two back to back, almost like four or five months apart. And it was the end of a whole generation. And so I was acutely aware that after that was my parents' generation. And then I'm on deck. And it felt like my life was just being wasted away. And mm. there was like the, the sand in the hourglass was slipping through. And all I wanted to do was just like plug it up or stick it back in the hourglass. And I couldn't. The sand just kept falling through my hands. And it was just this complete hopeless feeling. For me, it felt like sadness. Mm-hmm. And but I mean, I had some anger, but the the sadness was just like, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. What am I doing? Like, what's the point of this? Yes. Who is this for? Because like, everything's fine. I have a whatever I could. Everything's fine. I can go on trips and I can do all the things mm-hmm. that make me look like I have a fulfilled life. Yes. But I feel, I wouldn't even call it empty. It's just, I felt like I wasn't living up to who I could be yeah. and who I knew I wanted to be. And that like missing potential, me missing who, missing the mark of who I am, 
hurt my feelings. <laughs> I was sure. like hurting my feelings every day. Yes. And you made me think that that was very much of like um, regret, right? I just felt this overwhelming sense of regret. Like, why did I give up on acting? Or, you know, why why didn't I stick with following my dreams? Well, how why did I even end up here in the first place? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just kept thinking like, you know, if I die tomorrow, I don't want to regret all this time I spent making PowerPoints to justify my existence to other people. Like this cannot be my life anymore. This has to stop. What's your relationship with PowerPoints right now? (laughs) Oh, I never do them. I mean, I did one for a speaking engagement, but that was fun. So that's fine. Literally, if I never make another PowerPoint for the rest of my life, I will be okay. Like I I never (laughs) want to make another one, to be honest, but I know I probably won't get away with that. But oh gosh, PowerPoints, dog and pony shows. I know it's a lot of, um, evidence-based, like, here's what, whatever. And I usually, it was smoke and mirrors. It was a bunch of BS we made up that we're like, we're probably going to do this. We think this is what might happen. And then like some other initiative would pop up or we'd be asked to do something different. And then we wasted all this time putting together a PowerPoint and for no reason, just to make it like pat ourselves on the back and be like, look at how great we are. So what was the, like, what actually caused you to quit? Okay. So, well, a uh, funny story. Um, I actually was let go, but it was like oh. the biggest blessing ever. So I uh, was watching The Secret. So for anyone who hasn't seen The Secret, highly recommend watching it. It's all about the law of attraction and how you speak things into the universe and then it will come back to you. And I was watching the part where Jack Canfield, who is the author of Chicken Soup for the Soul, talked about how he got his books written. And it was all about action. He's like, you can manifest all day long, but if you just sit on your couch and you never actually put pen to paper and write the book, it's never going to come to fruition. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, this is 10 years, remember, after when I first started writing the book, it's been sitting on my laptop now for like a decade. And this bolt of lightning comes from the back of my head where this book idea has been buried and shoots to the front. And I was like, my memoir my memoir. I have to write my memoir. And that was it. That was the moment I knew everything was going to change. So I literally started writing 15 minutes a day. That was it. And that was, I want to say, uh, well, that would have been like 2019. Okay. Um, so beginning of 2019 and by the following year, um, I decided to get an editor cause I was like, okay, I have enough written this is like a solid book, but I, I know I need professional help. So I hired yeah. an editor two weeks before the world shut down with COVID. And then um, in August of 2020, I got the call that my position was being eliminated. And it was the best phone call I've ever received, I think. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely like top two. <laughs> when... It- I've been laid off before. It was not a it was not a good day for mm. me. But I was also like 26. It was my identity as a right. as an attorney. I had all of my self-worth was tied up in all of this. Um I had no plan B. <laughs> I was like right. shit. Anyway, how how do you believe that you manifested that? 
It sounds like what I'm hearing is oh, yeah. that you believe that you called that in from the universe. 1000%. And I kept saying that my end date was going to be December 31st. With or without a severance package, I was planning on leaving anyway at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Now, I also know me and my addiction to money because um, let's be real, the money drug is strong. Mm-hmm. And so I probably would have gotten there and said, oh, I'll just get through my bonus. Just let me get my bonus. And then I would have said, you know what I mean? I would have just probably kept moving the goalpost. And I think because I had done so much work on my website, I'd really put it out there. I was like, hey, I'm an author and this is what's going to happen. And I was just doing so many things that were leading up to me launching the book that the the universe god you know was just like we're done here girlfriend get out of the nest it's time to fly you you have to be done so i fully believe that this was divine intervention just like no you can't mess around here anymore this isn't your purpose this isn't what you're supposed to be doing yeah have you felt like the universe has supported you since then every day yeah really every day yeah i mean there's always something that is um, happening or a person like you that I get to meet, you know, and then I get to do a podcast and I get to talk to somebody about something or, you know, somebody is in my Facebook group and they ask a question and I'm able to give them some guidance. I mean, it's just, it's just always kind of things are happening and moving pieces in the right direction. So I think it's always at work. And I probably don't notice half the signs, but, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get better at reading them all. It's interesting because like this feeling supported from the universe is a lot of the, it's what keeps me going. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, going back to being a solo entrepreneur, why you joined the junior league, how we know each other, this loneliness of working on your own, needing community, needing some signs that like, you're not a total crazy person for believing in yourself. <laughs> yep. You're not a total crazy person for helping people change their lives. <laughs> You're not a fraud, whatever it is that you like yeah. coming from corporate America where you have a job, the job pays you a salary. You make PowerPoints. The PowerPoints prove something to somebody. The proof to somebody then, you know, turns into a product or turns into another engagement, whatever it is. There's always like this cycle of the next, the next, the next. Yeah. It's all this reinforcing of what is and what you did and what I did was kind of get off of that, take a step back and look at our lives and go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. Right. Where do, where do I want to be? Mm-hmm. What do I need? And it's a radical act of self-love to say, I don't fit in here. Yeah. Um, self-acceptance. So much self-acceptance. And that was so hard for so many years because I knew I wasn't happy back in 2016. And mm-hmm. I waited four years for, for the call that my position was eliminated. And I thought everything would fix it. I'll go to a different company if I make more money, if I have a better title, this, that, the other. None of that would fix it because it wasn't where I was meant to be. And being able to just go, I don't belong here. And that's okay. Like I have so much value and so many things to share with the world that don't fit in this little box. Yeah. Well, 
Can you relate to yourself as a weirdo now? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I wrote a book about my vagina. So yeah, pretty much. Like for real though, do you relate to yourself as, how do you relate to yourself? Um, right now I would say I'm living more authentic to myself than I've lived in a long, long time. Mm -hmm. Um, and a much slower pace and that I really am enjoying. I think I suffered from some pretty severe corporate burnout. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and that was hard for me because I'm so used to go, 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 go. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the recovered corporate workaholic. That's kind of how I think of myself a lot of days. And, and when I first left corporate in my bio, I would always say recovering. And then there came a point where I was like, I have to change this because as long as I still say recovering, then I'm only still recovering. I'm still going to fall back into the old tendencies. I'm like, I need to own it. I need to claim it. But no, I'm recovered past tense. This is over. I'm not this person anymore. And that's been very freeing. It's interesting. I think in my LinkedIn bio, it says recovering attorney, but I think that is in part because you never, I can't ever lose or, and I don't want to lose my identity as an attorney. It is, it's important to me to still relate to myself as an attorney. I just don't practice law. Yeah. And the, I don't, I don't know. I, I will have to think about this recovering, recovered distinction just because the language and, of it is beautiful. Yeah. And of you, it, maybe it's different too because the thing attorney in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. I don't mm-hmm. know any time where a workaholic is a good thing. Um, too much of anything is bad, right? Mm-hmm. So it may be if I was like, you know, recovering corporate woman or something, like maybe it wouldn't be something that I want to sever so much, but that workaholism, oh man, it'll just kill you. So detrimental. Well, you've talked a little bit about this addiction to money, addiction to work. Like what does the, do you relate to yourself as an addict overall? Or is it just interesting? You know, that's interesting. Um, And I definitely have very addictive tendencies. Mm -hmm. So I went through a period of time where I was super addicted to working out. I mean, I worked out three, four times a week. I would post it every time I would work out. And it was basically like my way of being accountable to myself because I'm like, well, Mm -hmm. I got to post it. So I got to do it. Um, I definitely have had uh, alcohol addiction. You know, I've never been to AA. I have not formally done that, but I think that's one of the things that I'm owning now. Um, you know, especially towards the end there when I was going through, I call it a midlife crisis. I know people don't like that term, but I don't know how else to describe it. And I was searching for answers in the bottom of a wine bottle and I was drinking three, four drinks a night, um, seven days a week. Mm. So that to me is is an alcoholic. Um, and then towards the end, God, COVID, I just would start sometimes at 10 a.m. because I was home. I'd put apple apple juice and bourbon together. And then I just looked like I was drinking apple juice on my conference calls. Um, if I wasn't on camera, I might actually break out a wine glass because why not? Um, so yeah, it was not healthy. So I think I definitely do have... Um, addictive tendencies. So it's really important for me to constantly be aware of my behavior. What am I doing? And is this something that's serving me or that's Mm -hmm. hindering me? 
So do you not drink at all now? Uh, rarely. Uh, we try not to have it in the house. Mm-hmm. Just because if it's in the house, I can't, I don't know how to say no. I don't know how to walk away from it. So that for me has been one way to curb, curb that. Uh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I feel like, you know, I, there's been a series of people who've done this podcast and everyone has related to their addictions very differently. Some people have done AA, some people don't, some people, um, will smoke pot still. Some people are take pot in Illinois. It's uh, legal. So you can buy like the very delicious gummies. Oh, <laughs> there you <laughs> go. Which are, that's my vehicle of choice because I don't, I used to smoke cigarettes. I don't smoke cigarettes anymore. So I don't like smoking weed at all. It yeah. feels gross to me. Um, but what I, what I notice is that the pattern of addiction or the pattern of how you relate to yourself as you can't stop it mm-hmm. is probably the thing that it, that's the, that's probably the piece to look at. What, how are you out of control or how are you beholden to something else? Yeah. And I love that beholden to. And so like even me with coffee, so I, because of medical reasons, can't have caffeine, but um, I got very addicted to then decaf coffee. Mm-hmm. And it was really more the action of like walking around with my sippy cup, you know, like with the straw and like drinking it. And and just there was something about going to get it, having it in the car, drinking it, walking around with it in my hand. I don't know. It was like my crutch. Yeah. And so I have tried to cut that out because it was like it had a hold on me. Before we could do anything, well, mommy has to stop and get her coffee. And I'm like, why? Why do I need to stop and get a coffee? Why is this? I'm building my whole day around when I'm going to go to Dunkin' Donuts or wherever and get my decaf latte. And I'm like, this has to stop. There's nothing wrong with having a latte, but it needs to be not something that is driving me, but I'm actively driving the choice. And it wasn't for me. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting distinction. It's like, I hear the desire for the reward or the Mm -hmm. ritual of it. And at the same time, what I think you're pointing to is the, whether it's a compulsion Mm -hmm. or whether it is a willingness to just enjoy the ritual right, or or be present in what your choices are for the day. Yeah. And, and who am I making a choice or am I defaulting to habit? And that for me, I think was really an important distinction because for so many times it was just habit. And I don't even know if I was fully enjoying it always. And it bothers my throat. So I actually don't feel good after I have one, but it's such a habit that I, my day was all confused without it. So it's been one of those things that, you know, I just continue to put up boundaries. I continue to hold myself accountable to check in what's really going on here. Sometimes like I'll walk by the coffee aisle in the store, like the grocery store, and I'll just look at them and go, you don't need me. I don't need you. You don't have power over me. And then I'll just walk out. (laughs) But it works. It just, it works, you know? Yeah. How, do you ever get tired being so self-aware? Of course. I think it's exhausting, right? It is. It is. And that's one of the hardest things about being a coach. Um, So 
I'm I'm going through perimenopause right now, so I'm oh. I'm gearing up for a sequel, everybody. So go read the first book because <laughs> there's going to be lots of juicy material for a second. Um, but perimenopause is terrible, and it has really taken um, control of my hormones in a way that I was not prepared for. So it has made me very. Um, I've had bouts of very woe is me victim mm-hmm. mentality, and that's not me anyway. And it's certainly not a good look on a life coach. So what I have had to deal with, you know, for the past three months or so is these roller coasters of hormones where one day I'm flying high, I'm super happy, I'm excited, life is great, I have all this energy. And the next day I'm like, why is the world against me? What is going wrong? You know, and that is not how I normally behave. So I had to go get checked out at the doctor to confirm like, what is going on? Do I have bipolar? Do I have something else going on? They're like, you have perimenopause. And I'm like, okay, so this is just lucky me, a fun little next stage of my vagina journey. And I just recently got back on birth control. Mm -hmm. And that for me has been such a blessing because when I felt like I couldn't be authentic because I was having these moments of frustration or anger and I would like post something and then all these people would post like, well, why don't you just do this or try that? And I'm like, this isn't helping me. Like, I just want to have my moment where I get to be vulnerable and I get to be angry and I get to have a bad day. But really, that doesn't serve me. So I don't. I know that's not actually where I want to be, but there's always kind of this thing when you're when you're a coach where you're like I got to show up a certain way and I got to be a certain way because everybody's looking at you going but you're a coach so if you're doing this maybe that's okay or mm-hmm. maybe that's how I should do you know or oh god well do I want to coach with her if she's having a bad day so there were a lot of things that made it really hard um to to be always authentic and then you're dealing with this hormone issue. So it's not even really authentic, not even really who you are. And so it's been a really interesting time, but I've been back on the pill now for about a month and things have really started to regulate. And I feel so relieved because I'm like, oh, I'm back. (laughs) Like, hi, hi, this is me. This is me. It's not a surge of progesterone anymore. Like I'm I'm, I'm back. Totally a normal person. My estrogen hasn't dropped to zero and not Hulk raging with testosterone in this moment. It's cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. It brings a host of other challenges with it as I'm finding out, but, um, you know, I'm going to stick it out for a little bit longer and see if I can tolerate it and how it goes. I have had, uh, an IUD for ever. I've never (laughs) had one. Tell me more. Uh, I've had a Mirena since 2011 and it's beautiful. I barely have a period. Hmm. Barely. Oh, nice. And yeah, it's fantastic. I've never been pregnant. It's it's worked really well. It's no drama. I think I've gone through two boxes of tampons in three years. That's amazing. That's the best part is like not having to buy period products. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that's a good reminder. Your sales for your book go to a period 
Alliance for Charity. Per- yeah, Alliance for Period Supplies. Um, because period products are so expensive. And I know for people like you and me, it's like, okay, right? Like we take it for granted. We get to go to the grocery store or the drugstore wherever we buy our products and just get them or order them online and the, get the organic ones and the non-toxic. And then you have women out there who cannot afford products, who have to miss work, you know, young girls who can't go to school for a week because they don't have anyone to go buy period products for them. Mm -hmm. And they're using old t-shirts, old socks. I mean, things that are not period products. And when I learned about this and found all this out, I just, I knew there had to be a way that I could help and serve on a bigger scale, but I didn't know what initially. So in my town, I would just always, whenever there was a drive or like a food drive or anything, I would always see if period products were on the list and I would go get a bunch of those and bring them in. And so when I was getting ready to launch the book, I thought there's got to be a way, an organization out there that is national in scope that I can partner with. And when I found Alliance for Period Supplies, which is actually funded by Kotex, you buy Kotex, I just knew like, oh my gosh, this partnership is too perfect. So yeah, a portion of the proceeds from every book sold is going to their organization and we've already raised over $2,000. So, Oh, that's amazing. I know. It's so crazy. That's like, trying to do some math, that's like 20... 20 people's period supplies probably for a year. Oh, easy. Yep. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, Well, I end every episode with a couple of questions. So the first one is like, what is some advice that you've gotten that has been probably effective for other people, but just not for you? Oh, hmm. Um, Well, I think in... In the whole online space, there's always people who are like, you should be doing a reel. Oh, you should be on TikTok. Oh, you sh-. you know what I mean? Like everybody thinks that because they're seeing one coach or one author or one human being doing X and it's working really well, that that's going to work for me. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's not a week that goes by that somebody doesn't tell me to go on TikTok. And I don't know, maybe I should. But quite frankly, I just, that sounds exhausting and I really don't want to have to manage another profile. and you know, platform. So I'm not going to go make videos on TikTok right now. I'm just going to stick with Instagram and Facebook and all that fun stuff. So I think that's probably one of the biggest, you know, things that I hear all the time. Um, or you should give your book away. <laughs> like, How about I don't? <laughs> how about I worked really hard and spent a lot of money producing this? This is not like you're an average self-published book. I mean, I had editor professional editor. I had a copywriter. I had a proofreader. I had a, you know, expert cover designer. Like it's an award-winning book. It won first place, um, in the nonfiction sexual health category at the book fest. Um, it has a reader's favorite award, five stars. I mean, this is a really, really well-produced book and I'm just not going to give it away for free. Yeah. You shouldn't. No. I agree. Um, how can we find you? Like yeah. what's what's that? How do we get to you? Awesome. So my website's a great place to go, karenfreeland.com, because you can get to everything from there. But uh, go buy the book on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ins and Outs of My Vagina, a penetrating memoir. And of course, again, you will be helping Alliance for Period Supplies. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Karen Freeland or on Facebook at Karen Freeland Life Coaching. 
And I have a special group called Successful Working Women Rocking Reinvention. So if anyone wants to check that out, um, it's private and it's off LinkedIn away from work and we'll help you uh, do your transition. Cool. Finally, what does success look like for you? How will you know? Oh, this. I'm already successful. I wrote a book. (laughs) Dang. (laughs) Right? Like, I love that question, though, because for so many years, I was like, well, this is what success will look like. I'll hit success when I'm here. But I'm just enjoying the journey. I mean, I left corporate. I wrote a book. I have a small boutique practice. I live life on my terms. Friday's off. Right? Friday's off. I have money in the bank. Um, This is success. This is it. I'm living it. Talk being on your show. Now I can be like, dang, I was on This Is Not Advice. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Karen, I am so glad that the universe had us cross paths. Me too. This Thank you fun. so much for doing the show. Thank you for um, really owning your body in a new way and putting it out there in a, I don't know, at 100,000 words so that other people can relate to it in a in a way that's like good for them too. Mm-hmm. Thank and thanks for, thanks for all of the work that you do with your clients and the women in the world. I have it that there aren't enough of us yeah. to serve all of the women that actually want to talk about what's next for them. Yeah. And so if you're out there listening, like go get a coach and do the damn thing. I, whether it's Aaron, whether it's me, whether it's somebody else, doesn't matter. Just like Do it because life is too short and you deserve to reach your full potential. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. That was perfect. All right. Have a great day. You too. (laughs) This is Not Advice is brought to you by me, Erin Conlin. If you are interested in learning more about my coaching practice or how we might be able to work together, please visit erinconlin.com. This podcast would not have happened without production support from Cedar Cathedral Narrative Studio. 